you take your Bible, turn to the book of Acts as we turn there. It is just so uh, wonderful to be able to gather here at church and to uh, thank the Lord for living in a country like we live. We have freedom to gather like we can. We can gather freely and worship the Lord. I think of all the blessings our God has given our country with the freedom to send missionaries all over this world. America has turned into one of the, the, the premier um, places from which missionaries go and spread the gospel. And it's because of the blessings our country has been given by the Lord that we can do that. And let's not ever take that for granted, that um, God has blessed us mightily. I'm very grateful for that. As Americans, we can be patriotic and we can be grateful for what our country and what our fathers and mothers did before us to pave the way so we can gather like this in freedom. Amen. Acts 25 is where we are today. Acts 25, I, um, I wonder... If you've thought much about what it looks like when God protects us, what does God's protecting hand uh, look like? Sometimes it's obvious to us, um, like when we're standing on the side of a road and all of a sudden a car comes careening by and nearly misses us, uh, barely misses us at, at full speed. And that, that's a moment where you think to yourself, wow, that could have been really bad, really fast, and the Lord preserved us in some way. But there are also those moments where it's less obvious, where you hardly recognize that God is, is indeed protecting you. In fact, I was talking with David Spur on Wednesday, and he mentioned to me that he was flying his plane and coming in for a landing, and he was giving praise to the Lord. He said, you, you have, uh, God just, just really was there. He said, because as I was coming over the, over the trees, he said, I wasn't far above the ground, and a gust of wind came up, and it, felt, and it turned the plane 90 degrees sideways. He said, I was able to recover it and land, but it scared me to death. And those are the moments where you think, Lord, thank you for being there. Thank you for protecting. But it's not always obvious when God protects. I I have no doubt that God has protected me so many times when I had no idea. In fact, isn't it amazing that sometimes it feels like everything is moving in slow motion and you've asked God to help you, you've asked God to assist you, you've asked God to protect you, to deliver you, but it seems like God is putting you on hold and you're getting frustrated with God's timetable. Has it occurred to you that, that God's timetable in your life might be for your own protection? The most obvious example of this is when we're caught in traffic, isn't it? We're sitting there thinking, Lord, why is it that every time I get in the car, like everybody decides to get in the car at the same time? And now I'm stuck and I'm sitting here in this traffic and I have better places to be or I need to take a break. I need to use the restroom and there's no exit in sight or the kids are yelling and screaming and they won't be quiet and and this is driving me crazy. Lord, why now? Why did you do this? And and then this has happened to me where I have I have made my way through or I have done the calculations in my mind where I've gotten delayed at home and I couldn't leave on time because somebody wasn't ready to leave the house yet and I'm getting frustrated with them and I'm thinking, why are you moving in slow motion? You, don't you realize we are on a mission? We have a place to be. And yet when all the things work out, when the timing works out, I realize that God has perhaps even spared me from something very tragic that I come across that has just happened. Have you, I know many of you have shared that with me. I, I've experienced that. And I can't say for certain if those things are necessarily connected, but sometimes we get angry with God for not moving more quickly. Sometimes it's because we don't see the full picture. Sometimes it's because we need to learn to trust God in times when we don't understand. A person who trusts the providence of God will experience God's protection through his life. And as a result, this is the kind of person who can show confidence and boldness in the Lord 
and take advantage of the opportunities God has given him to do that work. When you trust God, good things happen. You trust God's timing. You trust God. You see God's hand, and then you take advantage of the opportunities God has given you because God's preservation of our life and our health will last as long as we are able to serve him faithfully. Sometimes we wonder, God, why have you, pres- why have you not preserved somebody? Why have you not let somebody live longer? Or why, did I, why, do I, why am I still around? Why am I still here? Well, God has something for you to do. Father, we ask you to give us grace, uh, give us your wisdom as we open your word. I pray we would understand what you have before us. Thank you for these stories of the early church and how you teach us through them and show us pictures of those who trust you and your divine providential hand behind every page. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul has been left in prison by a man named Felix. If you go back to chapter 24, just the last verse there, it's probably on the same page in your Bible. 24:27 says, after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. He had the opportunity to let Paul go, but he left Paul bound, being in prison for two years. Did not mean that Paul had lost faith in God's power or in God's plan. For two years, Paul stuck in prison, unable to go somewhere. And how easy would it have been for Paul to think, Lord, I should be out there, not in here. God, why can't I? Didn't you call me to be an apostle to the world? It wouldn't be easy to get frustrated with God's timing, and the things are not turning out how you thought they would turn out. Paul is not only a Pharisee, he's also a Roman citizen and has certain rights not afforded to most people. So Paul, the Roman citizen, is protected as God uh, God, I say here, first point, God protects his servants in surprising ways. And he does that here, and we see in the first 12 verses, that when you trust the Lord, when you follow the Lord, and when you serve God, God protects you in ways that will surprise you. And this is what we see here in the first part of this message. You might not anticipate how God is going to, how God is going to protect you. First, we see there's some surprising support in the verse, first five verses. It says in our text, Acts 25, now when Festus had come to the province after three days, He went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him, that's Paul, to Jerusalem, while they wait in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man and see if there is any fault in him. We have a brand new governor here, this brand new governor named Festus. As soon as he is put in charge, immediately travels to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's uphill, which is why it's called going up to Jerusalem. He goes up the mountains into Jerusalem, and he's trying to to meet with these people who are very important in this region. He's trying to do some some uh, political business, basically. He's trying to schmooze these people and get to know them and, and see what's happening and trying to make sure he gets on a good footing with them. And the first order of business in verse 2 and 3, if you look in your Bible, it says that the, the Jewish leadership, the first thing they ask, it's been two years and they have not forgotten about Paul. It says the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul and they petitioned him. They, they know that Paul is waiting in jail and they also know that Festus is susceptible to kind of suggestion that they're going to give him. Because one thing we learn about this man in this chapter is that he always wants to make people happy. He wants to please other people. He's very aware of what people think about him, and that makes him a target. Because the Jews see an opportunity. We have a brand new leader. He wants our approval. Let's 
apply some pressure here to see if we can get Paul released, or at least, as they say here, have him summoned to Jerusalem. And while he's on his way to Jerusalem, we'll have men lay in wait for him, and they will ambush him and attack him and murder him. See, the, the Jews were corrupt leaders. We should expect the religious leaders, these Jews, to have good ethics, but they do not. They want to get rid of Paul by ambushing him and by killing him. They tried this trick before. If you go back to Acts 23, which you don't have to, I have it on the screen here. It says that when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy, and then they came to the chief priests and elders, saying, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he, Paul, be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. These men had not succeeded in trying to kill Paul then, but they were going to try it again. They thought with this new leader they could trick him, but there's a surprising supporter in verse 4. Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go. He's, he has unknown reasons to us. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us what his thinking was. Uh, maybe he's suspicious that they're planning something. Maybe he kind of sees what's going on here. Or maybe he doesn't want to give too much to these very pushy people uh, in his administration. He doesn't want to give too much to them. Or maybe he's just lazy. And he doesn't want to go through all the trouble of bringing Paul. He's like, I'm getting ready to go back home to Caesarea to where I rule. Why don't you just come with me? He's already there. And whatever the reason, we don't know. Festus doesn't want to go through the whole trouble of bringing Paul. So he says, I'm going back to Caesarea to where I rule from. And those of you who have a problem with him, why don't you come with me? And you can confront him with your accusations when we're there. God used this surprising supporter, Festus, you would not have expected to protect Paul from the danger that awaited him at the hand of Jewish leadership. Secondly, we see that God gives Paul some surprising wisdom as he is confronted by this issue. We see God gives Paul this wisdom in verse 6, and when they had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Festus returns with this Jews, Jewish leadership. They're eager to get this trial underway, and Festus wastes no time. The next day, he commands Paul to be brought before them. We don't know how much Paul would have known about what's going on outside his jail cell. Some people say that Paul was getting regular reports from people. He was having correspondence. He was talking to people. We, that's possible. It's also possible that he's been waiting in his jail cell for two years, not knowing what's going on. And then all of a sudden, he gets a call. You're coming up. You're coming up, and you're standing before the governor once again. And, and once he's there, I want you to imagine Paul's thinking. He gets there, and he looks, and he sees the same guys who had tried to kill him earlier are there again. Look at verse 7. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, this is Paul speaking, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. The danger is actually becoming quite apparent to Paul. Paul has been left alone for a couple of years, and now he comes and they lay serious complaints against Paul. They're laying complaints that could send him to jail or send him to to be killed. We can guess these complaints are the same kind of stuff that they had said about before, that they, he defiled the temple or that he was telling people not to follow Moses or all this stuff, religious things. But there's something missing from the prosecution, and, and that is evidence. They had no proof. They have no evidence that anything they said was true. Anything that Paul, they're accusing Paul of doing was actually stuff he did. 
And then so Paul answers for himself. This is interesting to me that several times we're told Paul speaks for himself. He answers for himself. He has no high-powered attorney on his staff answering for him. He steps up and he speaks and he states the simple truth. He says, I have not offended in anything against the Jews, against the temple, against Caesar, against anybody. And, and, but you notice verse 9. Look at me at verse 9 because this is again a clue to Festus's behavior and his attitude. It says, but Festus, what does your Bible say? Wanting to do the Jews a favor. Oh boy. And if you look back at Felix, Felix had wanted to do the Jews a favor as well. There is, a, there is a desire among these political people to do political things. Surprise, surprise. Political people do political things. They try to, to do trades and try to make people happy with them. They're trying to keep their position. They're trying to make everybody happy. And he says, are you willing to, Paul, he says, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? We, we see here that he says, if we go to Jerusalem, I'll still be the judge, but we can do it in Jerusalem. And, and, and I think that, uh, you know, he, he wants to be in the Jews' good grace. It's the same kind of things that went on to Jesus's trial where, where they just said, you know, we just want to make everybody happy. We want to let them kill Christ in order to just make everybody stop rioting. And, and Paul here is a citizen, so he has these rights, and he, he, he wants to ask his permission. But look at verse 10. Paul has this wisdom when he says, I, I, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know, for if I am offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things to which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. I, I might even think of this as supernatural wisdom on the part of Paul because Paul has been intent on going to Jerusalem so much. Do you remember over the past several chapters how Paul has set his heart towards Jerusalem? He wanted to go to Jerusalem. He has been, Jerusalem is his home, uh, where, well, it's not his home necessarily, but it's where the people, the Jews are. It's where a lot of his friends are. There are a lot of Christian supporters in Jerusalem. And it makes all the sense in the world to go back to Jerusalem. Yet God gave him this, this, this wisdom. Could he truly get a fair trial in Jerusalem? So many people there wanted him dead, but instead of going to where he'd already been, Paul takes the advantage of an opportunity to present the gospel to a different place. Because Jesus had already told him, we'll talk about this in a moment, that he was going to be going to Rome. And so, so Paul recognizes that God's mission for him is changing. He is not going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go beyond Jerusalem. God had made him an apostle to the Gentiles, remember to the Gentile people, not to the Jews. He was rejecting the opportunity to return to Jerusalem in exchange for audience with Caesar. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Paul says to Caesar, I have done, if I've done something wrong, I'm not afraid to pay the price for it. What a good, clear conscience. Then Festus, verse 12, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. As I mentioned, uh, Jesus uh, spoke to him in Acts 23. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. You have testified for me in Jerusalem. You shall be a witness to me in Rome. That's Acts 23, 11. Here was the opportunity he had been looking for. And so Festus, he talks with the council, maybe the Sanhedrin. We don't, that's typically the word used for council here. And he decides to send him to Caesar. And I think here, maybe the, the Sanhedrin think, oh, good, he's going to go to Caesar. He'll definitely get what's coming to him there. Or at least we can get him out of our eyes. God protects in surprising ways. When Paul was sitting in that jail cell, he had no idea God would keep him there to protect him from the plotting and the scheming of people who wanted to kill him. And it's appropriate for us to often thank God for protecting us in ways we see and also in ways we don't see. Today, you need to thank God for ways he's protected you in ways you can't see. 
You need, to, you need to remember that God has protected you in countless ways of which you do not know. And thank the Lord for that. Secondly, God gives His servants surprising opportunities. We see this in verse 13, that God was working through corrupt leaders. God can even work through these corrupt leaders, these kind of leaders who would normally not, not, we would not want them to lead us. I think we might identify with some of these feelings. Look at verse 13. After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there's a certain man left in prison by Felix about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. We have King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, and Bernice, who is his sister, come to Caesarea. He's like Felix. He's a governor like Felix, but over a different region. And again, likely Felix being, or Festus um, being newly appointed. Now he's in, in this role. And now we see that Agrippa can come over and, and, and do some political uh, stuff. You know, they're, they're doing their state departments. They're talking to each other, basically, right? They're, they're doing what they need to do for diplomacy. But you need to understand who these people are. They're, they're not exactly the kinds of people you'd want leading you. Uh, for example, Bernice was the daughter of Agrippa I, the sister to Herod Agrippa II, who's there. There was a lot of scandal associated with Bernice. If you want to do some interesting reading and understand the soap opera of the first century, you just read about Bernice. She was married very young, and her first husband died. And then around the age 13 or 16, she married her second husband, who turned out to be her uncle. Well, she knew it was her uncle, but she married her uncle at about age 16. And then his uncle was Herod of Chalcis, and her second husband died four years later. I'm starting to notice a pattern. I don't know if it's related or not. But after her second husband died, uh, four years later, she's only about 20 years old. She goes to live with her brother. And a lot of historians, a lot of writers, they're suspicious of inappropriate relationships between these two. So later she married a man named Polemo. King Agrippa here is Agrippa II. Agrippa I, we've already known. We've met Agrippa I back in Acts chapter 12. And Agrippa I was the man who was so prideful, he stood out, and, he, and, he, and somebody said, the voice of a god and not of a man, and he was filled with pride so that God struck him and worms ate him up from the inside. This is, this is not a good family. This is not a family that's honoring the Lord. They're not the kind of leaders you would consider to be of the highest moral order. And when you see them as Paul, you might be worried about what they're going to do because they're not known for their moral clarity. And yet, so what they do is in verse 14, he brings up Paul's situation. They're working through the diplomatic matters. It says a few days have passed. And Festus leans over to Agrippa and says, hey, I've got this guy. Okay, I've got this situation. I've got this guy. His name is Paul. And he's a leftover from the previous administration. I don't know what to do with him because the chief priests and the elders of the Jews have asked for this judgment. And these Jews, these are such corrupt leaders. They had brought Paul there, as we've already seen, in order to try to get him killed for things of which he did not do. They are trying to work this, this, uh, this terrorism plot, this guerrilla warfare plot, so that when he's in transit, they can attack and kill him. They want to get rid of him. They are corrupt leaders. Yet, you know, God works through corrupt leaders. God can work through corrupt leaders like Felix, like Festus, like Agrippa, like Bernice, like the Jewish leaders. And I would say it's a really good thing that God can work through corrupt leaders because I feel like we have a lot of corrupt leaders these days. <laughs> and there's not a day where I, I don't pray, Lord, God, save America, <laughs> please. And we, we, we are working through these, these, God works through these corrupt 
wicked men, just as he did with the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. God worked through these corrupt leaders. God also works through conflicted leaders. We see this because we know this happens a couple times in the book of Acts. Leaders don't know how to handle these followers of Jesus. What do you do? They're not really causing trouble. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything morally wrong, but they're turning the world upside down. They're causing massive cultural change. They're, they're, they're infringing on my feelings. The, the, the truth claims of Christ are universal claims, and people don't like that. And so here, there's this conflict. We see Festus's response to this pressure when he received from the Jews. The Jewish leadership were asking him to do something contrary to Roman law. They're saying, you need to convict this guy of a sin or of a, of a crime so we can kill him. But Paul's a Roman citizen. You can't just do that. So the Jews are asking him to, to violate Roman law, and the Romans are saying you can't do that. And so he's, he's conflicted. Would he obey the Roman law and get some favors in Jerusalem, or would he uphold Roman law and perhaps create difficulties in Jerusalem? I mean, the Jewish leaders were not the easiest people in the world to get along with. They had a propensity for causing riots and causing destruction and, 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 and doing all kinds of bad things. So he fills in Agrippa on this conflict in verse 16. He said, to them I answered, it is, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face and has the opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him, verse 17. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in, verse 18. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such thing, I suppose, but had some questions against him about their own religion, about certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Notice here that the Roman law and the Roman governor is more interested in righteous judgment than the religious Jewish law, religious Jewish leaders. Isn't it amazing? He, he, they should have known better, yet it's the Roman who is thinking clearly. He understands the conflict, but he's conflicted. He was uncertain what to do, verse 20, and because I was uncertain of such questions. I didn't know what to do. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and be judged according to these matters, verse 21. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus Caesar, I commanded him to be kept until I could send him to Caesar. I don't believe that he here is uncertain about what the right thing to do is. I think most of us know what we should do. The conflict is over whether he has the courage to do the right thing. God shows his power working through a leader like Festus who's so conflicted. And then I put the third one here through curious leaders as well. We see that in verse 22, because after Paul, I'm sorry, after Festus here talks about Paul being a man who spoke, I love how he says this, about a certain Jesus who had died and then Paul affirmed to be alive. I wonder what Agrippa thought when he said that. I wonder if his ears perked up a little bit because he knew about Jesus. And he says, oh, I can hear from Paul. Look at verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear this man myself. So Festus replies, tomorrow you shall hear him. After Festus explained what Paul is there for, Agrippa wants to hear him. I don't know why he said this. The most likely reason why Agrippa would say this is that he was genuinely curious about what Jesus, or what Paul had to say about Jesus in the resurrection. He was genuinely curious. Do not, listen carefully, do not discount the fact that people in leadership need to be saved. 
do not discount the fact that the people who rule us in government are sinners who need a Savior. They need to be hearing the gospel of Jesus, and they're curious too. They are curious about their fate just as you were curious about yours before you came to Christ, or if you still haven't come to Christ. They, they, they are curious, they are conflicted, and we find out in the next chapter that Paul actually was able to speak to Agrippa. He heard his testimony, it had a huge impact on him. We'll talk about that next time. But before he can speak, Agrippa and Bernice come to hear him. It says, verse 23, the next day Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, great, great pageantry. They, they show all the, the greatness of humanity before Paul. And he entered the auditorium with the commanders of the prominent men of the city and Festus's command. Paul was brought in. The scene is set. The men put on their greatness. They come with great pageantry. And Festus speaks to the crowd gathered. There's a whole crowd. There's a lot of pageantry going on. And Festus says, King Agrippa, verse 24, and all the men who are here presented with me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out, <clears throat> sorry, but let me take a drink here, pardon me. I got a little carried away, excuse me. <clears throat> I would not have made it as one of these heralds, you know, speaking. Let's try this again. Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. The Jews' decision had been that Paul was not deserving to live, but what would his decision be? Verse 25. And when I found out that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Festus punts. He says, I don't know what to do here. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to write. So why don't you help me? Why don't we just have him come, give his defense, and then we'll figure out what to write as we send him to Caesar. God works through those who hate him. God is able to work all things together for good, even using those who despise him. God gives surprising opportunities to those who trust him and are willing to stand for the faith. Last week, we saw in the Supreme Court of the United States a ruling in a case that came out of Colorado. Now, Colorado right now, I don't know what's going on over there, but they, they have been on a, uh, on a tirade against believers who have faith and decide to and, and want to exercise their religious liberty. And they brought a case against a woman. They forced, of course, you all remember a few years ago, they tried to force a Christian baker to bake a cake for a um, gay wedding. They recently took on a Christian website designer who was had a conscientious, conscientious objection to writing out um, messages for a uh, doing a message or writing a thing for a for a gay wedding. She said, "I can't do that. That dishonors the Lord. That this is not that is not marriage. That is dishonorable to God. And I cannot put my name. I cannot contribute to that." And they sued her, and they won in Colorado, and they brought it all the way to the Supreme Court. And this woman was brought before judges and accused of doing something wrong. She did nothing wrong. This woman was tried in the court of public opinion and called a bigot. This woman had her state 
take aim at her religious beliefs, and she stood firmly on her convictions in the truth of the word of God. Now praise the Lord that our Supreme Court has enough sense to see the injustice and make a ruling that fits with her religious freedom. And, and, and you know what the amazing thing is, is that those who sought to destroy this woman, you know what they ended up doing? They ended up elevating her and giving her a platform by which she could speak and tell others about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God uses those who hate him for his own glory. They're so mad and angry at truth that they have to try to squash it. Yet God seeks at this moment to show us a little mercy and exalt her. Back to the book of Acts. This is probably not how Paul would have drawn up the situation. He's got a powder keg in front of him. And next week we're going to see how Paul gives a sermon that's so crucial at this moment but I want to stop here at the conclusion. I have several points at the very end of your message, at the message, at the very end of your outline that I want to work through in our conclusion. Now, hang with me. I know it says conclusion, but it doesn't mean we're done now. It's like Paul. He says, finally, brethren, then talks for another five minutes, right, or 20 minutes. So, so focus here, because this is really where it all comes down to. In, in meditating about this message, praying through this message, one detail in particular struck me over and over again is the contrast between all these different men in the story. And what makes a difference? Why did Festus act one way? Why did Agrippa act one way? Why did the Jews act one way? Why did Paul act? They're all acting so differently. And what was the key? I, I wonder, how did the Jewish men become so corrupt? How did the Jewish leaders become so corrupted? I believe that it should not surprise us that the people who knew the Old Testament, or it should surprise us that the people who knew the Old Testament, who studied the Bible, who prayed to God and claimed to be the chosen people of God could become so corrupt so quickly. How, how is it that today so many pastors have corrupted their churches with falsehood? How is it religious leaders, people who claim the name of Jesus, are walking around corrupting the Word of God, twisting the Word of God, I think if you look at the story before us, you can get a good idea of what happened. First, they excused sin. They excused it clearly. They excused lying. They excused uh, their desire to kill. They wanted to murder. All to maintain their political power. Friends, it, it, people who are religious can become corrupt when they start excusing sin. When you start saying it doesn't matter because you're in trouble. When you start justifying what doing wrong in order to do what you think is better, right, then you're in trouble. You're on the path towards corruption. They excused sin, and secondly, they rejected Jesus very clearly. In rejecting Christ, in rejecting his claims, they could not allow his claims to disrupt their lives because Jesus disrupts. When you accept Jesus' claims, you must prioritize him over every human authority. You, rel you realize this. Jesus says, unless you hate your father or your mother, you cannot be my disciple. What he means by that is that you must follow me even if it means your family rejects you. Your ultimate, your ultimate allegiance is not to your family. It's not to your, your community. It's to Jesus Christ, and Jesus will disrupt. The same danger exists to people today who excuse sin and reject Jesus. We become corrupt in our thinking, corrupt in our behavior, corrupt in relationships, and very religious people who reject the authority claims of Christ and excuse sin will be twisted and be distorted so that they will lose track of what's right and what's wrong. This has happened today, and it will continue to happen to those who excuse sin. How do the Jewish leaders, how do religious leaders become so corrupt, excusing sin and rejecting Jesus? Why was Festus so indecisive? Why was he so conflicted? What's going on in his heart? I think his key flaw is that he was trying to please everybody. 
He was trying to please everyone. He wanted to keep the Jewish leaders happy. He wanted to keep his own civil authorities happy, but these two groups were in opposition. And people who try to make everyone happy and everyone like them will have a hard time doing the right thing when it's the hard thing. He was inexperienced, and he probably thought, I don't know what to do. (laughs) He was young, and he was uncertain or unsure about Paul's message. He would not confess Jesus as a Savior. He was not willing to believe Paul's preaching, but I think he knew what the right thing to do, and he didn't do it. And what James tells us is that to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. He knew Paul was innocent. Thirdly, why was Paul such a bold and confident man? So many of my applications, especially in the second half of the book of Acts, have focused on this, that that Paul was bold and willingly stood before those who falsely accused him and spoke with power. How could Paul be so bold in the face of death? Well, I think a couple things. First, he had complete trust and confidence in the providential hand of God. He knew without a doubt that God's providential hand was at work, and his providence is seen in God's timing and the delay in God's chosen leaders and in God's permitted testing. Because the Bible tells us there's no temptation is overtaking you except as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. With the temptation, will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God will never allow a temptation to come your way that you cannot, you cannot honor him in. And further, we see in James chapter 1, my brethren, he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He had complete confidence and trust in the providential hand of God, and he decided to fear God and not men. It's a simple decision, but it's a hard decision. It's a simple decision that I will trust, and I will be a bond servant of Jesus. I will trust Christ, and I won't worry about trusting men. Throughout his epistles, every time Paul penned a letter, this is what he said, Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. He identified himself as a servant of Christ, and servants don't get to choose whether or not they obey. They have to obey. He said, I'm a servant of Jesus. And his words were in obedience always to the highest authority, the Lord himself. He says, we have always approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. Our desire is to please God with our words. Therefore, he committed to please God and not worry about pleasing men, even if these men had a say in his life. He says, do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? If I still pleased men, I would not be a what? A bondservant of Christ. You can't be a slave of Christ and a slave of people. A man can only serve one master. We must trust God's protecting and providential hand because God's protection probably doesn't look like what you'd expect it to look like. But I want to challenge you today in this matter. Would you, like Paul, be bold? Or do you see yourself in Festus? Do you see yourself in these Jewish leaders? Have you started to excuse sin? Have you started to be twisted in your thinking? Are you indecisive because you haven't placed Jesus first? Because you're trying to make everyone happy? Would you instead be like Paul in this situation and choose to trust the Lord, to commit to him fully, and to accept Jesus as your master, and you become his bondservant. Lord, we thank you today for your hand at work in our lives, for the providential way you protect us. There are so many things that happen, Lord, that we cannot even begin 
to imagine all the ways in which you have protected us. We thank you for that. But God, I pray right now that you work in our hearts to convict us of where we have fallen in these areas that we might find, we might find restoration and repentance. Now, we know that we can confess our sin. You are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Lord, thank you for that promise. That we know today if we have fallen short in these areas, that you give grace and you give forgiveness to those who will come freely and come in faith to you. Lord, I also pray for those of us who have been frustrated with you, who feel like our lives are in slow motion, who feel like you're not moving at our pace. And we get frustrated with you. We get frustrated with our leaders. We get frustrated with other things because we think we know better. Lord, help us to remember that your hand is at work and that you are a good and loving God and your timing is perfect. Help us to consider ourselves as bondservants of Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to give you a moment to deal with the Lord now. As you see yourself in these folks here in this passage, would you be willing to confess that sin and ask God to cleanse you? that you might be changed, you might be transformed. And if you've never been saved, maybe today, well, I'm going to ask you today, please, today be the day where you come to Christ in salvation, for salvation, where you come to him in faith, asking him to save you from your sin. You don't have to do anything except receive the gift that's already been provided. You cannot earn salvation. It's a gift from Jesus Christ that was paid for by his death and proved by his resurrection. You come today as one who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us you will be saved. You'll be rescued. You will be redeemed and forgiven. You will be cleansed and have peace with God. If that's never been your account, if you've thought you had to work your way to heaven or be a good little boy or a good little girl to go to heaven, and that you've been seriously misguided and deceived because it's not about your behavior. It's about your belief. It's about where is your faith. Jesus says that, the, that uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Would that be your cry today to God? Lord, I believe in you. I receive your gift. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Make me your child. Father, we ask that you work in our hearts today as we come before you. We can hide in you, knowing you are our protector, you are our defender. And we thank you, Lord, for preserving our country, for giving us a place which we can rejoice. We can worship you without fear. And I pray that you would help our country to turn back to you. So many people need to confess of the sin, drawing people away from you, Lord. Our country is a wicked country. We don't deserve your mercy. Please give us your grace. Help the Christians of this country to, to continually pray on our face for our, for our people. Help us to evangelize and reach those who need to hear. Help us to be bold and speak the truth without fear. In Jesus' name, amen.